When you think about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made, it's one of those things that I can't get over because every time, and I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but when I look at the details of creation, that blows me away. Whenever we learn something else or we go a little deeper and we break apart an atom or we, we, we look at a molecule and we see these things and it tells us our DNA and how what DNA is doing to us today to tell us and reveal the thumbprint, our unique thumbprint. It's like there's nobody else that has that. That's my DNA. And we didn't know that for so many years. There's so many things about the infinite nature in, uh, that, of God that we will never get to. The mind is one of those things things that I, I can't fully grasp. Just take one part of that. I, that's why I, I come to euthanasia. That's why I come to abortion. That's why I come to suicide. And I go, man, how can you end what God has started? And we fearfully and wonderfully started and beautifully started. Maybe what we need to do is we need to figure out what God's design is in that. And let's redeem that instead of extinguishing that. That's what we need to be about. But when you look at the mind, the mind is an incredible computer, some people call it that. It's so much more than a computer. Yes, it can process data. Yes, it can, it can, it can collect in memory for years and years and store it for years and years and years. But IBM has shown us with the invention of Watson that we can create a computer that can store more memory, that can process data faster. But what we have not been able to do in all of man's advancement, and neither do I think we'll ever be able to do this, and that is to create a machine that can reason, that can emote that can process the data and remember all that together at the same time. Again, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. One of those little elements when you look into the mind is this element called the reticular activating system. The reticular activating system. Not one of those things that exactly you talk about over coffee all the time. But let me, let's talk about what some have abbreviated as the RAS when they're talking about this. This is a part of the brain that is a unique part that actually when it's activated, it creates an impulse throughout the entire brain. The reticular activating system is the part of the brain that enables your, your body to reason out the data that is being inputted into the mind, whether you're hearing it or you're seeing it or you're smelling it or you're tasting it or you're touching it, and telling you whether or not this is something you need to be alarmed about. So give you an example. You move and you move across town, across country, and you buy a house and you did not realize that at 1 a.m. in the morning, two blocks away from your house, a locomotive would come through blaring its horn, its warning signal, and at 1 a.m. the first night in your brand new American dream home, you find out that at 1 a.m. every morning for the rest of your life that you're in that home, there's going to be a train coming through blowing its horn at 1 a.m., that's going to get annoying really fast, right? Unless your reticular activating system begins to uh, discern that, hey, there's not a train coming through the front door of my living room right now, that I'm actually going to be okay, and that eventually over time, you're going to be able to sleep like a baby right through that, right through that train coming straight through uh, the neighborhood at 1 a.m. in the morning until the in-laws come to visit you. And they're going to remind you that how do you sleep with that train who's blaring its horn at 1 a.m. in the morning. That's the reticular activating system. It gives us the ability to turn things on, turn things off, to be able to say, this is what I need to listen to. This is what I don't need to listen to. We need to activate. We need to understand the reticular activating system maybe at a soul level. 
When we talk about this series of study through the book of Ecclesiastes, and some of y'all are joining us for the first time, thank you. I'm glad you're here. Jump in with both feet today and have a life jacket on because we're going to go deep fast, okay? But as we, as, we, as we jump into this, we need to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about margin. Need to have margin in our life. If we don't have margin in our life, certain things happen. One of those things that happens if you're a marginless person is that you are full of a lot of sound and fury in life. There's a lot of noise out there. And sometimes your spiritual reticular activating system can't always distinguish between the noises. And so sometimes all these noises are going on in your head and in your heart and in your soul, and you can't distinguish them. And so you get chased in, full, in, in 15 different directions, and you, you, you have spinning plates, and plates begin to fall, and the values begin to change and be altered, and perceptions and morals even get compromised because, again, there's lots of sound and fury out there in this world. There's lots of notifications. There's lots of alerts and dings and bings in our life. And we have not yet learned how to discern what is the right voice and what's the wrong voice to listen to. And because of that, we have made ourselves a complicated mess. The way one of those passages that I said it's our theme verse throughout the series is Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 says it, God made us plain and simple. But we have made ourselves very complicated. I want us to say that out loud together, all right? God made us plain and simple, but we have made ourselves very complicated. In seven days or six days, he created the heavens and the earth and everything that exists inside of it. He created time and space and everything that exists inside. And he did it with the voice and he holds it all together with his breath, the scriptures tell us. So he does it in this simple formation, but what we have done behind him read Genesis chapter 3 and following, we have made it complicated. And we have made it a mess at times. And how do we navigate, again, the messes of our life? So a person without margin is a person that's going to have a lot of sound and fury in their life, and they're not always going to be able to figure it out. And you need to be able to figure it out because a person with margin has figured out peace and contentment. They've got a level of peace and contentment in their life. And it's not just positive mental thoughts, but it's something in them that they've learned how to appreciate the air they breathe, the things they have, the life they have, the marriage they have, the children they have, the job they have. They've learned how to say thank you and not expect and expect and expect. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, said it like this, discontent will destroy your peace. Keep that phrase handy discontent will create a destruction of the peace of your life, rob you of joy, make you miserable, and spoil your witness. I just want to focus on just one of those. Discontent will destroy your peace. And in this message, we're going to talk about peace, but I want us to understand that on the sound and the fury of this world that tells you you need more, you need more, you need to fill your life with more, you need to have more, you need to spend more, you need to do more, you need to go more, you need more, 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 fill up all the margins of your life, that is a, that is a spirit of discontent. And when we live a discontented life, then it will destroy the peace of our life. I think Packer is right on with that. Take your Bibles and we find Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible or you, you have the electronic version, uh, go to the middle of your Bible and just kind of turn right. Psalms, big, biggest book in the Bible, and then 
turn right and you come to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be diving into some dark waters, some deep waters, some could be murky, dangerous waters if we're not careful today uh, that maybe, maybe, no, I don't think maybe, I think many will identify with. Uh, I don't like Ecclesiastes, to be honest with you. At the same time, I like Ecclesiastes. For the very reason I don't like Ecclesiastes is the very reason I like Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, you're, you're like reading the journals of Solomon, King, wise, influential, successful King Solomon. You're reading his journals in the latter part of his life, and you're reading it, and you're going, oh my gosh, how dark and desperate and dungy and dirty can you get? And then all of a sudden he comes out of that muck and mire and he he gives us a kernel that we can hang our hats on. At the same time, I don't like him talking about the darkness of life. He's really authentic. He's real. He doesn't hide it. So as much as I don't like to hear the negativity, at the same time, I like the authenticity. And sometimes my unwillingness to hear negativity trumps my willingness to be authentic. And sometimes what I need to do is face life with an authentic lens. This is what is reality. When we say we're at Grace Point Church, we are an authentic church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. This has been a value since day one of our church. Day one of our church. It's a statement that we made day one and we're still making to this today. And the emphasis starts with authenticity. We want to be, I know it's a buzzword out there today, but before it was a buzzword, it was one of our words that we really value getting into the muck and the mire of life. And sometimes that's not so easy. So roll up your sleeves and let's do this today because it's going to get hard before it gets easy. It's going to get dark before it gets light. It's going to be muddy before it gets clear. I kind of feel like the old Drake, uh, the, the Drake song. Uh, we started at the bottom and now we're here. And we started at the bottom and the, whole, uh, and the whole team's here. I don't want to leave anybody behind. So let's start at the bottom and let's climb. And it's the edited version of that song, by the way. Um, <laughs> I would only listen to that. Uh, but Ecclesiastes chapter four, let's begin in there. And again, I saw all, and some of y'all are still stuck on the fact that he just quoted from Drake on Sunday morning. Again, I saw all the oppression that we had done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the other side of the oppressor, There was power, but also notice this, there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never even been born, never even existed, never been and has not seen evil deeds and have done under the sun, that have been done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. And the striving after the wind, and the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has 
has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Again, you read Ecclesiastes, I'm, I'm sorry I'm with you in this, that, or maybe I'm glad that we're together on the same page because I've heard people say this. I don't, I'm not really excited about this book, but at the same time, I can't wait till the next week. And it's one of those things that I'm kind of there too. It's like, oh, what's going to happen next? And so I turn the chapter this week and I go, oh, wow, where are we going with this? And I, and I, just, I, I, just, I just get into the heart of Solomon here a little bit and I, I go, those voices that he's talking about those those noises and the sound and the fury that's out there that people are in their life dealing with, that's still today. That's still today. Going on this hour, going on in this room. And I want us to talk about four voices that we'll have to discern in this marginless world that we live. And so which voice is the greatest voice in your life? That's the question. At the end of the message, I want you to be able to say, this is the greatest, the loudest, the most dominant voice in my life. Listen to here's number one. Number one voice that we hear is, I am alone. I'm alone. I'm alone, which is really weird in a society that's so connected. Unlike ever before, we are more connected 24-7, more uh, than ever in humanity's existence. We're always on. These are always at our side. We're always connected, yet selectively and superficially. And it's like this. The more connected we are, the more alone we feel. What an oxymoron that is. Let me, let me give you some, some empirical data to kind of help back this up, to kind of put meat on the bones here. Psychology Today reported that 40% of Americans reported regularly, not occasionally, not on those one-off bad days, bad hair days, but reported regularly feeling lonely in 2010. That is up 20% since 1980s. That we are feeling more alone, 20% more, not 1%, 10%, 15%, 20% more alone today than we were in the 1980s. That a number of Americans say that, no, that they had no one that they could confide in nearly tripled between 1985 and 2004. Now, again, that blows my mind Now, correlation doesn't always mean causation, but it is a very interesting correlation that we are, have since the 1980s, and most of these are benchmarked off the 1980s, that since the 1980s is the invention of email, is the invention of texting and smartphones and social media. We have more avenues and ways of connecting today than we did in the 1980s, but yet we don't have more people to confide in. We don't have more people in our lives that we're feeling that we're not feeling lonely anymore. We're feeling more lonely, more alone, more disconnected in this world. 
When you look at verse 1, the first thing you look at is you see this oppressor kind of stepping on the scene. Who is the oppressor? What's he doing? Shame on him. This injustice in this world. And you might key in on that and let that become the focus, but I don't think that's the focus at all in Solomon's writing. Yes, injustice is wrong. Yes, oppression is wrong. All kinds of verses we could spend all day from Genesis to Revelation talking about oppression and injustice and how that's wrong. But that's not what he's going at. Notice what he's going at is the commonality the common ground between the haves and the have-nots, the powerful and the peasant, the CEO and the hourly worker. Notice the common ground between the two. Go back to verse 1. The oppression that has done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one, underscore this phrase, no one to comfort them. The oppressed felt all alone in this world. That big mean guy up up there, if I just was in his shoes, I wouldn't be so alone here. I feel so beaten down, so unappreciated, no one like... And I feel so alone in this world. But you go to the very next phrase and you see the very next words. And what is it? It's the oppressor with power to move his finger in life change, to move his, to at the stroke of a pen, to change orders and laws to his favor. He could structure the world in his own, in his own good. Yet even he doesn't have anyone to comfort him. And it's gender neutral, by the way. Next week, we're going to be talking about better together. Because if we don't make space for what matters most in our life, and if we don't understand that being better, better uh, together with the right people in the right season, in the right life, in the, uh, just right relationships, if we don't get that right, we will be marginless people for the rest of our lives and struggling in this area in a big time way. I used to think this was a man problem that men just don't, they don't connect with people and they don't, they don't want to open up. They don't want to share their emotions. And yes, that is true. Stereotypical men, that's exactly true. But what I'm seeing more and more is that women are even having a hard time having a safe place to, they may have BFFs all over, but do they have a safe environment? Are you a safe person? Are you a safe person that I can be real and raw with because I feel all alone? We talk about it that we exist to promote transformative community with one another. Because we think that that is biblical community. There's so much to unpack in that word, in that phrase of why Grace Point exists. But that one another phrase is, is so key to key in on the whole thing, to unpack it. Because we can talk about, I'm in a group, I'm with people. Uh, yeah, I think I'm changing from time to time. But there's this, this other word out there that's mentioned 50-something times in the New Testament alone. And it's this word one another. And he gives us a qualifiers to what it means to be in community with one another. And it's to love one another. It's to encourage one another. It's to motivate one another on to good works and good deeds and to love and acts of love. It's to confess your sins to one another. That means you've got to be pretty close and you've got to be pretty open and pretty vulnerable with people. It means to pray for one another. That means you're going to have to not just give that whole lip service kind of prayer, but you're literally going to be that 2 a.m. friend that they can call you at 2 a.m. and you're going to get out of bed and you're going to get on your knees and you're going to pray for that person. 
This is the one another relationships that we talk about. You're going to carry one another's burdens. Do you feel alone? There's a lot of people. We should not walk alone in this world. That is not what we were designed for. Thank God there's 34 different making spaces groups in our church with over 500 people in it. Financial peace is closed because there's so many people who needed to get financial peace because there was lack of margin creating communities around tables of other people who are needing financial peace. I love it that we have a divorce care out there. That last last semester, 89% of the people who went through divorce care were not a part of Grace Point Church. I love that. Because that tells me we're loving our community well. We're helping our community figure out the other side of a broken dream and a broken situation. Because no one should walk alone in this world. A couple of weeks, it's not for everyone, it's for some. There's going to be a trauma recovery seminar just to help equip those who want to walk with others who are living, picking up pieces in life. And... It's not for everyone. It's a Friday night, Saturday. It's all day Saturday, Sunday. It's not for everyone, but it's for some who don't want people to walk alone because no one should walk alone. Here's the second voice that we might hear today, and that is that I'm better dead than alive. When you go it alone, you're only a whisper away from the next voice in your head that says, it's better that I just not exist that my life is not of value. When you're alone, you're alone. You could be in a crowded place like this room right now and feel all alone. You could you can be with 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 friends and still feel all alone. You you can feel like the shame and the regret of life is is there and, and and darkness begets darkness and then depression begins depression and it just spirals deeper and deeper and deeper into our life. I've seen in my 28 years in ministry more people probably in the past five years than in the previous, previous years of my ministry commit suicide, deal with suicide, have conversations about suicide, contemplate suicide. That's the level of darkness. Talked to a man in our church just this morning who was with a family member this past week who confessed that had this circumstance not happened, they had a loaded gun and they were going to commit suicide. It is so real. Teenagers, the amount of voices that are in your life that are telling you that your life doesn't matter, it's real. The pain, there's no hope, escape from it. Ravi Zachariah said it like this. What happens when there's death of hope? There's only the hope in death. And that's a really dark spot. See, Mike, why are you going here? Because look at verse 2. And I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who were still alive. Would you read that verse with me? And I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. This is a Solomon, King Solomon, successful King Solomon, who's looking at his life and saying, listen, it might be better just to end it all. It might be better just to move on. It might be better. It might be better. And and we get into these head conversations. 
and these lies that come our way. Because we got to remember John 10, 10 still out there. And yes, Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. But what did the thief do? He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And to take from us a precious gift of life. And, and why does he, how does he do this? He does this through lies. Constant lies, lies that he gives us. Henry Nouns, a man that, uh, a Catholic uh, bishop, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he's a man who's influenced Lori and I in, in tremendous ways on the heart level. He's not a person that I devour his books, but I savor his books. I savor them because devouring them, you miss so much more. It's one of those I can only read a little bit and then I have to think a whole lot. Kind of one of those deep level thinker writers. Big into contemplative thinking and spirituality and that, and that levels, which we're really not good at. We like head stuff, fill my head with doctrine, give me the answer, give, give me a test, let me pass the test and I'm going to go on. But we don't go sometimes to a heart level. Solomon's at a heart level here, friends. He's at a heart level. Henry Nowen said, and Lori sent me this just actually recently, of the five lies that Satan will tell us. I am what I have, lie number one. I am what I have. And then what happens when you lose what you have? Think about that. Then you lose your identity. I am what I do. What happens then when you lose your job? Your identity goes away. I've seen it more than once. A man or a woman lose their job and it wasn't long, maybe six, seven months after that, that they lose, they lost their identity, they lose their marriage. More times than I care to report because so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we do. I am what other people say or think of me. Now we let that other person across the room tell us who we are. Now it's all the more important that I get those words of affirmation because if I don't get the words of affirmation, then my ego is not built up. And if my ego is not built up, then I don't feel valued. So if you would value me, then therefore I would have value. You see that vortex? Satan has a heyday with that kind of mental gymnastics. I am nothing more than the worst, than my worst moment. Think about that one. You talk about living with shame. You tell a person that, yeah, you did this, and because you did this, whether it be five months, five years, five decades ago, and that is still defining you to this day, that is something called shame, and that's what Satan loves to give us is shame. Here's another one. I am nothing less than my best moment. I'm nothing less than my best moment. So now I've got to continue to succeed, to continue to get identity in my life. Again, all of these voices create fury in our soul, create po- possibilities that we're just going to fill our life with more and more because we got to self-medicate and we got to self-fix and we got to self-diagnose and we self, 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 self. And it just creates this convoluted mess and you no longer have clarity on paper. It's now this jumbled up mess with markings and scratches and, and, and white out and, and it's just a mess. And we look at it. I think, man, it should be better just to move on. Not even exist. Some of y'all, I don't know, sticking my neck out here. But some of y'all, maybe this past week, you thought about, contemplated, ending it all. That's a lie. That's a lie. 
Here's another one. Here's another voice in the sound and the fury of this world is that I'm not enough. I'm not enough. So much of today we talk about branding ourselves or brand, there's personal brand. What's your brand out there? And it's the image management that comes with social media. It's the, it's the, it's the building your own platform out there. Nothing wrong with that. But so much, again, we start putting so much time, so much attention, so much focus on that, that that becomes our identity. And then we're never enough. We're never good enough, look good enough, are good enough. And it just becomes this endless constant, I'm never there. I've never arrived. And we do this in the way we dress. We do this in where we live and the subdivisions we live in. We do this on the job and the titles that we have and the bands that we're at. We do this in so many other ways that it's never enough. It's never enough. And we're constantly, as, Paul, as Solomon says, 39 different times in this book, vanity. We're just chasing the wind, chasing the wind. And you never catch the wind. Let's talk about dress. Guys, let me talk about you. Ladies, you can zone out for a minute if you want to, because I'm going to talk about guys because we, again, we use our dress to define who we are. And there's labels out there. I don't know what the ladies' labels are, so you'll have to figure that out yourself. But these are the guys' labels out there. There's the metrosexual guy, okay? Think about Beckham, okay? You like skinny jeans, you drink lattes and skinny suits, and you're slick and square jaw, or you want to be square jaw, but I mean, you've got it, you've got it kind of polished out. And you're really kind of focusing on that image from a professional way. But then there's this lumber sexual. And this, I didn't make this up. This is a literal group that's out there. They like boots, denim, flannel, and beards. They think they're hip and they drink their coffee in a pour over fashion. All right. That's how they like their brew. And they might even do their own home brew of the other kind of brew, if you know what I mean. I literally did, I, 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 I came across this, this title, Lumber Sexual, a few, uh, I mean, maybe a couple of years ago in out, out, Outdoor Magazine. So it's, it's legit. It's out there. Google it. Everything's on Google. It's got to be true, right? Here's another one, guys, retrosexual. This is the, um, this is the guy who wants to be that guy. This is the dad bod guy. He gets his suits at men's warehouse. He might even get them at Dillard's. He might, he likes his Folgers coffee. He's still drinking Folgers. Uh, nothing wrong with this guy in his mind. That's what he looks like. And he, he's going to work that. Literally, I looked up in the Webster's Dictionary. So again, it's official. Okay, this is actually a title. The retrosexual is an old-fashioned manly man. All right? That's what Webster's Dictionary says. So it's official now. Now... Don't tell anybody about this next group. They're the hipsters. I don't have a picture for them. Because if you label them, they're going to do everything they can to get out of that label. They're going to shop at Urban Outfitters. They're going to listen to Mumford & Sons. Or really where they like to shop is thrift stores. Because if they can get it at a thrift store, they know nobody else on the planet's going to have it because it's so out of date. But that's their identity. 
You, 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 you know, you're laughing because some of you all are in that category. So where are you? Are you lumber sexual, metrosexual or whatever, hipster or whatever you may think you are. But I love messing with the hipsters because all you have to do is say hipster. I'm not a hipster. And they start backing it out. Anyway, all of this is because we focus on the outside. We got to get the outside looking right, smelling right, acting right, because it's the outside, because that's what everyone's looking at. It's the outside, it's the outside, it's the outside. But we forget the inside. It starts from the inside out. So what happens when we go to the outside in instead of the inside out, what may decay on the inside, because this is like a, a mirage on the outside. We never can catch it. Fashions change every season, if you haven't noticed that. There's new stuff coming out all the time, if you haven't noticed that. So you, you, you get into this cycle of, okay, i got to keep chasing it. So you never get to the inside. When you never get to the inside, then it creates another problem on the inside, and it's the word envy. Because you look over there and you look at him and you look at her and I want to be like them. And so you keep chasing it. And look at verse four. He says, then I saw that all the toil and the skill in work that come from a man's. Where's the, where's the motivation to get up and go to work and, and to make more money? Because you got to get, you got to ca- catch up with the fashion and you got to catch up with the Joneses and you got to catch up because of man's envy. That's what drives so much of what we do. Because of man's envy. Envy is used 87 different times. This word envy is used 87 different times in the Old Testament. And I tell you, I have not preached one message on envy in my entire 28 years. And I need to repent of that. Envy is huge in Scripture. But yeah, we'll talk about so many other other things out there, the big sins. But envy is one of those that drives us. Envy is a form of idolatry. Envy is the, is the darkest side of jealousy. When we can't ever get enough, it's one thing to be jealous, but it's another thing to envy. It just ramps up the emotions. Dan Allender said it like this, envy arises because we are not grateful for how God has written uh, our world or for how he has blessed us. And envy comes from a sense of inadequacy and emptiness and rooted in our woundedness. The more a person is driven by emptiness and adequacy, the more self-centered and violent that person will become and the more oppression he will bring into the world. And when leaders, uh, when leaders fail to deal with the woundedness, they fail into, they fall into the pattern of envy and oppression. So the oppressor that we just spoke of, you know where the oppressor is? The oppressor is not always the guy on the other side. It's not always your boss. The oppressor is the guy in the the inside who's not been dealt with. What does envy do to us real quickly? Envy destroys us. Envy slays the simple, Job said. It rots in us. Envy is rottenness to the bones, Proverbs 14 says. It divides us. Man is not at peace, Thomas Merton said, with his fellow man because he is not at peace with himself, his inner self. He is not at peace with his, himself because he is not at peace with God. Paul told young Timothy in the church world, he told them this, in the church, quarrels about words which produce envy. 
dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among his people. It divides us. Where does it come? When when does it ever stop? Well, it doesn't stop because the eye is never satisfied, it says in verse 8. The eye is never satisfied. I got to keep, I got to keep going. I got to feed the monster and I'm never enough. I'll never get there. I got one more voice that I hope we'll listen to today is I am at peace. I am at peace is the fourth voice voice that I hope will somehow we can push out those other voices and raise up the volume the decibel levels. Paul I mean, Solomon talks about hands. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the hands represent the tasks, the things that we're about, the things that we do in life. He talks about busy hands in verse, verse 4. He talks about folded hands in verse 5, which is uh, in Proverbs even, in Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 24, folded hands dealt with a lazy, sluggard. It's a folded hands. You got busy hands, you got folded hands. The busy hands keep busy because they can't ever catch enough. It's like chasing the wind again. They can't ever get enough promotion. They can't ever get enough title. They can't ever get enough pay. They, they're, they're another job, another relationship. They're chasing, chasing, busy hands. Then there's the, the passive hands. Just fold and do nothing, let life come to them. But then he mentions another set of hands in verse 6, hands full of quietness. Verse 6, it says, better is a handful of quietness. Another translation said, better is a handful with rest than two handfuls of effort in pursuit of the wind. The message says, one handful of peaceful repose is better than two fistfuls of worried work, more spitting into the wind. See, we like hands full, hands busy, quick hands. We talk about full hands. We wish we had another hand so we could carry more, which just means we don't have margin in our life because we need another hand. And Jesus and God, they tend to use words like trust and wait and still. Trust and wait and still. In fact, Proverbs, in Psalm 46, 10, it says, cease striving, cease fighting, and know that I am God. I'm afraid some of us don't know God because they're too busy trying to be God. It's a dangerous posture to live. It's learning to wait. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. But don't run ahead of God. Wait for the Lord. I like sandwiched between. Yes, we need to be busy. Yes, we need to continue on. Yes, we need to be strong. Yeah, yeah, yes. But beginning and ending is waiting on God. That's hard. It means I'm, I have to give up control. It means I have to give over a bit of myself. But I want you to think of your hands today. Is your hand alone in this world? You feel all alone? Or are your hands just tired and weary and just want to die? Are your hands busy 
you got busy hands. You got lots of energy and you can't, you're chasing the wind and you're busy about it. Are your hands at peace? Better is a handful of peace than two fistful of busyness. Would you just bow your heads with me? Peace doesn't come through a mind over matter. Peace comes through a relationship with God Almighty. Do you have peace with God? It is impossible, I think, as Thomas Merton points out, that to expect peace in our life, peace in our marriage, peace, peace in our job, peace in our own hearts, if we don't have peace in the inner person in a relationship with Jesus. I want you to just, again, think of your hands. Do you feel alone today? Is that the dominant voice that you're hearing this morning? Are you feeling tired and like, I just wish it would all end and I just, I I could end it myself. I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. I never, 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 whatever. Are your hands so busy because you cannot seem to collect enough, get enough, go enough, whatever? Or are your hands at peace? You have found the balance of contentment and rest in life. If not, right where you sit, tell Jesus, I need you, the Prince of Peace, to be my peace so I can walk in peace, live with a handful, a life full of peace. And then during our time of response, I challenge you, I encourage you to tell someone. Prayer partners will be around the room. Go tell one of them. Father God, this is your space. We're not rushing out of here. There's nothing more important than figuring this out. There's too much other Sounds and furies on the other sides of these doors, Lord. Help us to take these moments and make sure we have first peace with you so then we can turn to those sitting next to us and start having peace with them so that we can go out into this world tomorrow and be a carrier of peace. Because, Lord, you tell us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're going to be called the sons of God. But we can't take peace if we don't have peace. In this space, listen to the voice of God and shut out the others. And let him speak. You respond as he leads you.